Please turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 17. We will be reading this morning verses 20 through 37. Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... Let the one who is, in, who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. When will the kingdom of God come? That question has captivated the people of God ever since Adam and Eve were sinned and were cast out of the Garden of Eden. In other words, when will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? When will the, the beauty and the perfection and the presence of God and the favor of God return to earth like it was in the Garden of Eden? We get tired, very, very tired of the sins of other people. We get tired of the struggle with our own sins. We get tired of the pain, the loneliness, the conflict the anxiety, the death, the poverty, the injustice, the war. When will it end? The book of Psalms so often uses the phrase, how long, O Lord? It's the cry of the faithful of every generation. How long until your kingdom will come? Until all this darkness and suffering and sin will be gone? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
After we have surgery, one of the first questions we often will ask the doctor is, how long will my rehab be? We want to know the end date. We want to know how long we're going to have to suffer through this before we're well again. We want to know the same thing about the coming of the kingdom of God. How long? But I'm struck by the fact that when Jesus was raised from the dead and before he ascended to the Father to take his throne and he met with his disciples, the question they asked was, is now the time? Are you going to establish the kingdom of God now? You remember how Jesus answered. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. I think one of the reasons he doesn't give us that time limit, that end date, for the future is that that's not what it means to live by faith. If we knew how long, then we could kind of suck it up and, you know, try to endure it in our flesh. But he doesn't want us to live that way. He wants to live by faith. He wants us to live by trusting in him, dealing with the trouble of each day and not always looking to tomorrow. You know, those who don't believe in Jesus also long for the coming of a kingdom. They long for a future without pain, without conflict, without anxiety, without injustice. But they have to look under the sun for their deliverance. So often they look to scientists to improve life, to fix things so that life can be more like it should be. Or they look to politicians the next president, the next king, the next legislature to come and make things right, to usher in an earthly kingdom. They've rejected God's Messiah, so they have to look for earthly messiahs to bring a kingdom of peace and health and prosperity. I think that explains a lot of the turmoil that we've had in our culture in recent years. I can remember back to the presidential election 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president there was an iconic poster of his campaign that you saw everywhere it was a uh, stylized pencil drawing with red and blue and it was a face of Barack Obama looking calmly and confidently in the future and at the bottom it had four big letters that spelled hope Again, so many people look to him to be that Messiah that would bring this kingdom of prosperity and peace and justice. And not just to pick on those on the left, though it certainly is true on the right. Last year, in last year's election, we saw many posters that spoke of former President Trump in messianic terms, like he would bring this kingdom of peace and prosperity if we only trusted him. This has been repeated all through history. Every culture, every generation, frustrated and impatient citizens look to political leaders to usher in a peace, a time of peace and order. They want a secular version of what the Bible teaches is the kingdom of God. But any semblance that any political leader, any group of scientists has ever been able to provide to human culture has always been extremely temporary at best. You know, this is a question that consumed especially the Jewish people in the first century. It was a really hot topic. When is the kingdom of God going to come? They believed 
that God had promised a kingdom. The whole Old Testament is full of the promise of a coming kingdom. But they lived under the iron boot of the Roman Empire. They were oppressed. They were taxed severely. They were treated harshly. And so they deeply longed for the coming of this kingdom. And they really believed it was imminent. There were a number of uprisings among the Jews against the Roman Empire that were put down by the Roman Empire, but that were led by wannabe messiahs. Most of the Jews misinterpreted the Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom. They misinterpreted the prophecies about the coming king. They expected the Messiah when he came in their generation, they expected him to be a great military leader, a great political leader, a great religious leader. He would come with armies, he'd come with chariots, he'd come with horses, and he would come with great conquests of the nations. And he would set up his throne in Jerusalem and set up a Jewish kingdom that would rule the world. That's what they expected. But Jesus didn't look anything like that. And that's why they didn't understand why he was God's Messiah. They didn't understand what the prophet Isaiah had said about the Messiah coming as a suffering servant before he came as a conquering king. And so as Jesus fields this question from the Pharisees, he has to teach them about the nature and the timing of the kingdom of God. They totally misunderstood what the Old Testament was talking about. If you read the Gospels, you see very quickly that the kingdom of God was a central theme of Jesus' teaching and preaching. But the people did not understand what he was talking about. So here he tries to teach them. When it comes to end times teaching in Scripture, Reformed theologians, Reformed pastors, we often will talk about the tension between the already and the not yet. We are already saved by grace, but we are not yet fully saved in body and soul. We are already in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not yet what it will be. So let's talk first of all, as Jesus lays it out here about the kingdom that's already here, the one that he came to establish. Verse 21, he makes a statement that doesn't shock us, but to first century Jews, they certainly would have been shocked by what he says in verse 21. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. How could, with their expectations of what the kingdom of God would look like and what the Messiah would look like, how could they understand what he was saying? Some translations there will translate it, the kingdom of God is within you. And it could be translated that way, but that's not the right translation. First, first and foremost, we know that because he's answering the Pharisees. He's talking to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God was not inside of the Pharisees. No, the right translation is what the ESV says here. It's in the midst of you. It's here. You just don't recognize it. That's what John the Baptist was trying to say. Remember in John the Baptist's ministry, he called the people to repent, but he called them to repeat, repent for a very specific reason. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was the forerunner. He was the one introducing the coming of the Messiah. And he said, the kingdom of God is imminent. It's at hand. It's, it's, it's just around the corner. And Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later on in his ministry, Jesus talked about the healings 
that he was doing, the healings that he and his disciples were doing, raising the sick, causing the lame to walk, causing the deaf to hear, causing the blind to see. As I said last week, he, he didn't do miracles primarily just to relieve suffering. The miracles were signs. What were they signs of? Well, he said in Luke chapter 10 that these healings were a sign that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then in Luke chapter 11, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And in refuting that accusation, he said to them, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is anywhere where the king is and where he rules. And the king, the Messiah, was among them. His kingdom had come to earth in a very real way. It, he would go on in verse 20 and 21 to say this is a spiritual kingdom. That's what they didn't understand. The kingdom he came to establish the first time would be a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. They have to radically rethink what they're looking for in the kingdom of God. You, they would not be able to sense the kingdom of God with their five senses. The kingdom of God would have no geographical boundaries. The kingdom of God would have no capital building. The kingdom of God would have no thrones. The kingdom of God would have no monuments. The kingdom of God would have no armies. What you come to understand is that Jesus teaches with the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of his teachings in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God it would only be seen in this fallen world as God's people, those who became citizens of his kingdom, served him with loyalty and obedience and submission. That's how you see the kingdom of God. You know, this is what Pilate didn't understand. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the Roman authority at his trial, Pilate asked this burning question. The question of the day, are you the king of the Jews? Have you come to establish your kingdom? Are you a threat to the Roman Empire? Jesus didn't say, no, I'm not the king of the Jews. He didn't say, no, I didn't come to establish a kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying to Pilate, my kingdom's not like your kingdom. My kingdom's not like the Roman Empire. It's a spiritual kingdom. It cannot be seen, it cannot be observed, but it is real. We have a tendency to think of spiritual things as less real than physical things, but the Bible teaches it's not. The, the spiritual reality, the spiritual kingdom is just as real as any earthly kingdom. And it's far more powerful. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about his, how his kingdom is gonna grow. How the impact, his kingdom came in the coming of Christ, in the coming of the king. The kingdom came and it was spiritual, couldn't be observed, but it would grow dramatically and you would see it by the impact it makes not only on sinners, but upon the world. But he said it would grow in a hidden way and he used two examples. He talked about the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, he says. You plant that in your garden and you don't see it grow, but eventually, slowly, it becomes the biggest tree in the garden. And then he compared it to leaven putting yeast in, in, the, in the dough makes, has a profound effect upon the loaf of bread, 
but it's hidden until you see the impact of it, until you see the effect of it. And he said, that's what this spiritual kingdom is going to be like in the world. And certainly it has been for 2,000 years. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he's, talking to, he's trying to explain to Nicodemus about how sinners in rebellion against the king, in rebellion against God and his kingdom, how those sinners come into the kingdom. He says they must be born again. But then he relates it to the wind. He says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. John chapter three, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That's how the kingdom of God is gonna spread the Holy Spirit bringing new birth and, and abundant life to citizens of the kingdom, sinners saved by grace all around the world. Jesus also indicates in what he says here, particularly in verse 22, that this presence of the spiritual kingdom in our midst doesn't mean that life is going to be great for citizens of the kingdom. That we're going to immediately experience this peace and prosperity and order. He prepares his disciples and notice that he changes from talking to the, to the Pharisees in the first couple of verses and then he shifts to talking to the disciples and he prepares them to understand what it's going to be like to live as part of this spiritual kingdom in a fallen world as sinners among other sinners. And he wants them to know that they will not live this life of power and peace and prosperity yet. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Now, when he says the days of the Son of Man, it's possible that you, know, you, could, you could interpret that. He's talking about the days when he was on earth 2,000 years ago. But in context, as, he, as you look at the rest of this passage, he's not talking about when Jesus came the first time. He's talking about when Jesus comes the second time. He's saying he's going to depart. He's going to ascend to his throne in heaven. And you're going to long for the days of the Son of Man. You're going to long to see Christ visibly enthroned over the universe and every knee bowing, every tongue confessing his Lord. You're going to long for those days, but you're not going to see it. There's an indication that his first disciples were not going to see the kingdom of come, come in their days. His disciples longed to see Jesus recognized as Lord and King. They would long to see the enemies of the kingdom defeated. They would long to see sin and its effects put away. But suffering must come first. Christ's kingdom would have no citizens if his suffering didn't come first. He could not establish the kingdom fully without him going to the cross. In verse 25, he says, but first the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what the Jews really didn't understand. That Jesus could come. He could have come with power. He could have come with an army of angels. He could have established a throne in Jerusalem, but there would have been no citizens in his kingdom because all would have remained under his judgment. It would have been an empty kingdom. He had to come and die for the sins of his people. You see, his kingdom is a just kingdom. It's a holy kingdom. It's a kingdom that cannot have sin within it. So sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. 
And so that's what the suffering servant Messiah had to do when he came the first time to establish his kingdom is he had to suffer for the sins of his people so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be given the rights of citizen of the kingdom by grace. But the suffering didn't end with the cross because the rest of the New Testament teaches that the disciples of Christ share in his sufferings. Not in his atoning sufferings, only Christ's sufferings as, a, as the perfect Lamb of God. Only his sufferings could atone for sin. But as we suffer for the gospel, as we suffer for the cause of Christ, as we suffer to carry out the mission that he has called us to, then the kingdom spreads its impact. That's how the leaven of the gospel spreads to all nations. It's through God's people suffering to bring this message of truth to a dying and rebellious world. And the beautiful message of, of the New Testament is that as we suffer for Christ and for his glory and for the sake of his gospel, we actually become conformed to him. We come, become like him more and more as he sanctifies us into his image. You see, this is the message that even many Christians have misunderstood for a long time. So often Christians talk about the kingdom of God as though it's something entirely future. Something that we're just kind of gritting our teeth and waiting for. But it's here. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's in a spiritual form. But it is here and it is more powerful than any kingdom on earth. Theologians talk about the kingdom of God. There's only one kingdom of God, but it has three different manifestations according to scripture. Theologians talk about, first of all, the kingdom of power. That's the kingdom, the right to be king that goes to the creator of all things. Jesus Christ has existed for eternity as the son of God, the eternally begotten, unique, only son of God. And the scriptures teach us that he created all things by the power of his word alone. And as creator, he has the right to be king over the universe. This is the kingdom of power that's existed from the moment of creation. But when he came the first time to die for our sins, to redeem for himself a people, he established the kingdom of grace. It's not a different kingdom, but it's a different manifestation of the one kingdom, the kingdom of grace, the spiritual kingdom that is among us and will be until he comes again to bring the third manifestation of the one kingdom, which is the kingdom of glory. When he will put away sin once and for all, and all of its effects. When all the enemies of the kingdom of God will be defeated. When sin will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. We who are his citizens now in the spiritual kingdom will be made perfect in body and soul to live in a perfect new heavens and new earth forever. That's the kingdom of glory and that's the ultimate hope of the gospel. This is the kingdom that is not yet. The kingdom is already here in its spiritual form, but it is not the kingdom yet that it will be when Christ returns to make all things right. Jesus tells his disciples about this in verse 24. He says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will, be the son of, so will the son of man be in his day. In that day, the kingdom will no longer be only spiritual. It will also be physical. 
Its coming will be universally witnessed, like a bolt of lightning lighting up the entire sky. Everyone will see it. There will be no doubt. Throughout history, there have been wannabe messiahs, some even taking the name of Christ, that have tried to start movements, that have turned into cults, trying to say, here's the kingdom of God and here's the king here, here's the return of Christ. But none of it has been true. Many false teachers have said, as Jesus warned here, look there, look here. But there's not going to be any theological debate when Christ comes back. There's not going to be groups wondering whether it's really him or not. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, either willingly or begrudgingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess when he appears like lightning and and illuminates the entire sky. Revelation chapter one, verse seven says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He uses the analogy of lightning to communicate the two key ideas that he's trying to get across here is that when he comes again, it's gonna be sudden. It's gonna be unexpected. It's going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. He uses two examples from the Old Testament to illustrate this. Two earlier massive judgments of God that we have in the record of Scripture. He refers to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, God judged the entire world with a worldwide flood. All mankind was destroyed in their depravity. Only one family was saved by grace, the family of Noah. And then in the days of Lot, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and sulfur. Only the the family of Lot was spared, saved by grace. Jesus points to those to an example of how he is going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't in any way mention here the depravity of those times. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that that's what's emphasized in those accounts is that it's the depravity of the people that brought the judgment of God upon them. The depravity of the people in the days of Noah, the depravity of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is why God poured out judgment upon them as a message to his people for every generation. You know what, as an aside, what really struck me when I read that again is In so many places, Jesus does this, but here's another place where Jesus speaks of two people and two events in history that modern scholars say are myth or legend, and he refers to them as literal history. Jesus believed Noah and the flood were literal history. He believed that Lot and his family being saved from Sodom and Gomorrah were literal history. But secondly, He doesn't emphasize their depravity. He emphasizes the way they were living. And he doesn't mention any sins. Did you notice that? He doesn't mention everything he lists there that they were doing when judgment came. None of those things on the list are sinful in and of themselves. They're good things. People, he said, were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They were buying and selling, planting and building. 
And that's the way it's going to be when he comes back. People are going to be living as though they don't have to give an account for their sins. They're going to be living as though they have many years left to live. And suddenly he's going to come back. And they're going to have to give an account. And the judgment of God will be poured out. I thought about that for a while. Why? Why does he list the normal things? And I think, here's my conclusion. You can test me on this in your own thinking, but... I think he lists these things that are going to be happening when judgment comes, just as they did in the days of Noah and Lot, because you can be forgiven for scandalous sin. I don't know what scandalous sin you've dealt with in your own life. You can be forgiven in a moment for scandalous sin, but you will never be forgiven for ignoring Christ. You will never be forgiven for living for the things of this world, the blessings and the treasures of this world, even the good things of this world, and being indifferent to Jesus Christ. Not knowing Christ, not believing in Christ, not trusting in Christ. You will not be forgiven when he returns if you've not trusted in him. Verse 31 says that on that day, those who have put their hope and their security in the things of this world, in the marrying and buying and selling and planting and building, those who have put their hope and security in this world, when he comes again, they're gonna their instinct is going to be to run down into the house. If they're at the top of the house, on the, they're up on the roof of the house, they're going to run down to want to grab the things they've treasured in this life, grab the people in this life that they've lived for, they found their hope and their security in. If they work out in the field, they're going to want to run home to try to protect the things that they've lived for their whole life. But there won't be any opportunity for that. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Come on, everybody knows what the shortest verse in the Bible is. What is it? Jesus wept. Do you know what the second shortest verse in the Bible is? Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Now, full disclosure, there's actually three verses with only two words in it. There's two more of them in 1 Thessalonians 5. And there's one other verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, interestingly, that's three words. But it's tied for second of the shortest verse in the Bible, remember Lot's wife. I don't put the, you know, the numbers aren't inspired in Scripture. The Scriptures are inspired by God, but the numbers aren't. But I don't know why they only put two words in some of these verses, but makes it easy to remember, doesn't it? If you remember nothing else about the sermon, nothing else from this passage when you go home today, Remember Lot's wife. Because she was almost saved in the words of C.H. Spurgeon. She was almost saved. She left Sodom as judgment was about to be poured out. But she turned back. She regretted leaving her life behind in Sodom. She regretted leaving the things she treasured, the relationships she treasured, the things that she had devoted her life to. She turned back and she came under the same judgment as the city of Sodom. See, that's the sin that Jesus is concerned to warn us about. He's going to come suddenly and he's going to come unexpectedly. And if you're living a life preoccupied with the treasures and relationships and securities, and values of this world, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. First Thessalonians chapter five, I will go to that chapter. At the beginning of that chapter, Paul actually 
speaks to us of the right attitude as we think about this coming kingdom of glory. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Jesus tells us over and over again in the Gospels, be alert, be ready, be prepared, watch. Watch the horizon for the coming of your king. Watch the horizon for the fullness of the kingdom to be established. I um, was at a funeral a little over a week ago. I went back to a funeral in Philadelphia for a good friend of mine. His name was Jay. Jay was the husband of a very dear uh, core member of our church in Philadelphia. And for most of the time I knew him, almost the entire time I knew him while we lived there, he didn't know the Lord. Uh, we prayed for him all the time. His, his wife loved him dearly. They had a good marriage in many ways, but he didn't know the Lord and it broke her heart. And so we prayed for him over and over again as a church family. And he was actually very open to talk about spiritual things. He was kind of a joker and, and you know, he, he had a great sense of humor. And, and I would try to share with him about spiritual things. And he owned a pizza shop in one of the worst sections of Philadelphia, West Philly, a very dangerous part of the city. He owned a pizza shop there for many years. And he'd tell stories, amazing stories about times where thieves would come in, try to steal his, uh, his uh, take for the day and encounters he had with dangerous individuals. And when I would try to share the gospel with him, and this is one thing he said several times to me, when I'd try to share, share the gospel with him, talk about spiritual things, he'd say, you know what, Dan? I'm going to wait till the next time, it already happened to him, but he said, I'm going to wait till the next time that somebody, some guy comes into my, my pizza shop and sticks a gun to my head, and in that moment, I'm going to accept Christ. I'm just not ready yet. And then he'd laugh, like it was a big joke. And I would just sadly shake my head and wait for the next opportunity. Now, praise God, and really in a very mundane way, the Lord revealed himself to Jay, and 10 years before he died, he gave his life to the Lord. I'm so glad he didn't wait till a thief had a gun pointed at his head. But, you know, how many of us, how many of us just don't feel ready? There's so many things. We're too busy seeking out our career. We're too busy seeking out relationships. We're too busy seeking our education. We're too busy with the things of this world. We don't give a thought to the fact that the kingdom is already here spiritually, and it is coming, I don't know how soon, I have no idea. It's not for us to know. But it will come suddenly. It'll come unexpectedly. And there will be no turning back at that time. Jesus ends with a very ominous message. He gives an image there in the last verse. The disciples ask him, where's, where, Lord, where's this going to happen? I'm not sure exactly what they're asking, but they wanted some more information about how this judgment was going to come. And Jesus says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You know, I think it's pretty clear what he's saying. He's using that imagery of a, of a dead body laying on the ground, and that's where all the vultures circle. Where's judgment going to come? Anywhere where people are spiritually dead. Anybody who's spiritually dead. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a picture straight out of the book of Revelation. 
I hate to end a sermon that way, but that's where Jesus ends his passage. I don't know who needs to consider that very seriously this morning. I'm sure somebody here does. Don't put off grace. The kingdom of grace is here now. The power of the kingdom is available to you right now to give you new birth, to give you new life, to give you peace, purpose, everything you truly need, and to give it to you for eternity. Don't play Russian roulette with your future. Don't say maybe tomorrow or maybe next week or maybe next year. The kingdom of grace is here. Verse, chapter 16, verse 16, it says that since the coming of John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. All over the world, the spiritual kingdom is spreading like wildfire. People are, are rushing into the kingdom of God to receive this grace. Don't miss out on it. Don't be preoccupied with eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and planting and building. All that stuff is going to turn to dust and blow away much sooner than you realize. Let's groan along with creation for the freedom of the sons of God. Let's pray daily, how long, O Lord? Come quickly. Maranatha. Let me end by reading this exhortation from 2 Peter chapter 3. Realizing that the spiritual kingdom of power is already here and that the kingdom of glory in all of its fullness is coming suddenly and unexpectedly, here is how Peter would have us live. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be and live in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, even those of us who are genuinely saved by grace and citizens of your kingdom, it is so easy for us to get preoccupied with the, the good things, let alone sometimes getting preoccupied with the sinful things of this world. Lord, lift our focus. Help us to look to your right hand to see Christ enthroned there. Help us to live as though we have a king. And not only do we have a king, but one who truly rules over all, is sovereign over all, and is soon coming again to make all things right. Father, renew that hope within us and give us a kingdom mindset as we look at our lives day in and day out. Help us to just trust you until you come back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.